Welcome to the Philosophy Podcast, where we have open conversations about fair trade fashion, sustainability, human trafficking, and artisans from all over the world. We're so happy you're here. My name is Jackie Costello, and my co-host is Jen Parlin. We are two women passionate about the impact of fair trade brands and inspired by the people behind them. Our goal is to connect you to the people and companies that make the world a better place. In this episode, Jackie is joined by Camilla Gomez-Wills, a Colombian attorney who is super passionate about the work she does. They are going to touch upon human trafficking, modern slavery, supply chains, and what's happening with COVID on a global scale. Camilla is so knowledgeable and we are so excited to have her with us and sharing with you. Enjoy. Hi, Camilla. I'm so glad that you can join us today on the Philosophy Podcast. Would you mind introducing yourself to our audience? Of course. Thank you, Jackie, for hosting me on Philosophy. I'm really excited to be in this space and to be sharing a bit of my journey and my work with the audience. Um, my name is Camilla Gomez-Wills. I'm originally Colombian and grew up between Canada, Colombia, and the U.S. And as you will hear later on in our conversation, that experience really shapes not only the topics that I care about professionally, but also my own work ethic and style. That's amazing. Thank you so much for being here. I'd love to hear about your personal journey. I know you mentioned that you um, grew up in Colombia, but how did you start working in human trafficking? Yeah, so I originally went to law school with an interest in why people behave the way they do in contexts of very, very high criminality. So if we think about transnational crime networks, of which human trafficking is one way in that appears, I was very drawn towards these embedded networks and what drove people not only to be a part of one, but to stay within one and what really was kind of the motivation. So it was a mix of, let's say, social psychology, criminal law and international components that drew me towards. And then again, drug trafficking being a huge problem in Colombia. I think that was in the back of my mind, but not necessarily what I wanted to focus on initially. And then I descended down the the moral scale, let's say, from drug trafficking to human trafficking and now to a more broader scope of modern slavery. And what we mean Mm. when we talk about modern slavery, and you've touched on this in, in previous episodes as well, is just an umbrella term that covers forced labor, sex trafficking, child labor, indebted labor. So it's really kind of a comprehensive term and category. Wow. That must have been such an interesting college experience or grad school experience, learning all of these different pieces. Um, what What is something really interesting that you have found about why these people are doing the things that they're doing? You know, the drug traffickers, the human trafficking, why they're involved in, in the things that they are. Yeah, a couple points that come up for me with that question. One of them is that human trafficking and modern slavery are quote unquote, a wicked problem. It's not something that has a one size fits all catch all solution in which one thing is what is going to work in any context, in every context, sorry. And it's not that one approach is going to be the 
one, number one deterrent. Um, I think it's really important to consider that element of it. And then the second one is that the trafficker themselves or the perpetrator, however we want to call it, is not a very um, easy to identify persona. You know, it's not always the same mm. person. A person can go from survivor to perpetrator. It's it's very it's a very fluid community. This isn't about good and bad people or evil, right and wrong. This is about enabling environments and very dire economic circumstances, unmet needs in contexts in which there's very low capacity on the part of states to enforce regulation and um, just a very complex mix of factors. So I do want to highlight that it isn't about evil or bad behavior or things like that. It's just enabling environments that really vary across regions around the world. So it's also important to think about that modern slavery isn't something that happens far, far away. Modern slavery happens much closer to home than what we think of. I currently live in San Diego. San Diego is a port city. And unfortunately, it's also a hub for child porn, for example, which is not something that a lot of people think about when they think about San Diego. So this yeah. is a global problem with very far reaching impacts and consequences. Yeah, and it's almost like, I mean, they're so good at what they do. It could, you could just be caught because you're in the wrong place at the wrong time. And like you said, if you're the person being human traffic, then you could become the person doing it. Is that what you're saying? Yeah, I think a little bit. The, the, the other side of this too is that often we think of trafficking as it relates only to sex trafficking, for example, which is what you're thinking of, of, oh, I was at night in a place and ended up, you know, locked up in a cell in a basement somewhere. That's sometimes how it appears, but other times it can be, and we're going to maybe talk, touch on this later on, but it can also come up through debt. You know, you have a family health crisis and your grandfather has a heart attack and you don't have savings. So you end up owing money to the person that employs you. So you end up paying, Mm. working for three years, essentially for free, paying back a debt that you incurred to pay off a health crisis or something along those lines, or sometimes even worth, you're just paying off a debt to a recruitment agency that quote unquote gave you this job, you know, for the privilege of having this role, you now owe us a year's worth of salary. And that's what in this space is referred to as employee paid recruitment fees. So the employee has to pay in order to get the job and then ends up owing salary. And that just puts you in a very vulnerable position socially and financially. Yeah, absolutely. So what do you think are some of the problems that you have found with why these people aren't being caught? You know, if whether it's the debt, whether it's human trafficking, modern slavery, how are they so hidden and, and so quote unquote good at what they do? Yeah, I think one element that has really come front and center for me recently is that this is pervasive and happens in most sectors, in most industries around the world. So I think one element of it is a lack of awareness. 
on the part not only of consumers but also enforcement agencies regulatory bodies you know you think of slavery as a problem long gone so i think that's definitely one element of it the other side of it too is we have conventions there are international conventions there is regulation there is domestic regulation in the u.s and many other countries that would be meant to stop trafficking and to stop slavery and to protect um, potential victims from it. And that's quite difficult to enforce as well. Number one, because there's competing priorities, right? States have other elements to consider, but also the incentives are not necessarily aligned to do so, right? Countries are also trying to attract foreign investment and also trying to attract brands for them operating there and employ there. So there's a lot of competing interests that maybe don't align with enforcing these conventions and these protocols. So to sum that up, I would say there's a mix of low capacity from a financial setting, not enough staff, staff isn't trained, etc., but also misaligned incentives for enforcing these conventions and these protocols when you're also trying to attract investment, increase employment, and um, generate, quote unquote, economic growth in your source countries. And then the final piece of the puzzle that I think is important here is that it's a problem that's not as salient as others. So when we think about I don't know, some organizations work on developing a cure for tuberculosis. Okay, that is a goal. That is what we're going to do. We're going to come up with a cure for this and people will not die of tuberculosis. This is a much more fluid and complex goal that is harder to measure and harder to show progress in um, just because estimates of, of prevalence and what we mean by prevalence is how widespread the phenomena is are very they 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 have a very wide spectrum right it's not oh we all agree that there's 40 million people in modern slavery today no not necessarily so so it's it's a hard to measure issue and therefore hard to establish a clear-cut goal and I'm, I'll, I'll give you an example the sustainable development goals one of them, 8.7, is specifically on working conditions and eliminating forced labor. We are far from being close to reaching that goal, unfortunately. That's not to say that there's very important initiatives working towards that. It's just a goal that we aren't um, advancing towards in a very clear way. Mm. Wow, yeah. It is. It is. Um, I think that that is partially why it can be frustrating as consumers and, you know, the general public that if we can't see progress towards something and we don't really know how to help, that can be why it can be a little a little frustrating um, and daunting almost. You know, I don't really know what my place is in this. I don't know how to help. That can be that can be challenging. Um, can you tell our audience a little bit about what your day-to-day looks like and and what your um, participation in this looks like? Sure. I, As I mentioned, I worked on this before from 
a government lens um, in Colombia, working kind of on the ground and with smallholder farmers that were that we were trying to kind of increase their access to economic opportunity. And there I really became convinced on the importance of income and having a stable source of income. So I moved to East Africa and worked at it from an international development perspective and how grassroots cooperatives in different regions of in different countries in East Africa were working towards that. And I became convinced that I was missing a part of the puzzle. I was just frustrating with mm. the approaches that I knew. So more recently, I've been working on the supply chain side of things. So I think, um, just bear with me here because I, I completely relate maybe five years ago, if someone had told me supply chains are very fascinating, I would have thought, oh, that sounds very boring actually. Um, so just bear with me here for a moment. But if you think about it, supply chains are about the processes by which a product goes from a raw material, and that can be the sheep with wool on it on a farm in a foreign country, or the gold in a mine that eventually ends up in the computer through which why which we are both talking today and the sweater that I'm wearing right now. So for me, the fascinating element of supply chains is the very interconnected processes that need to take place across multiple regions of the world with many, many workers in between. So a more fun and jovial explanation of what I do day to day is I work towards improving the conditions of the people that make the things we use. And what that I love translates that. to is I read a lot and <laughs> I try to distill that information for more general audiences. So yes, there's some journal articles and there's work being done, but it's also a hard landscape to map, as you were saying. And there's a lot of different certification bodies working on this. There's funding towards this. There's government initiatives. So understanding the landscape is another side of this. And I think right now during COVID, our reality has been impacted in maybe very unforeseen ways. And at the same time, it's also an opportunity that highlights problems and issues that were already there. And my work over the past two or three months has been precisely on zooming in on some of the issues that COVID has brought to light more saliently and has just maybe opened up a window of opportunity for changing very established practices. Wow, a lot to dive into. Okay, so in East Africa, you were working with farmers. In East Africa, yeah, and in Colombia was more with farmers. In East Africa, it was I was in Ethiopia working actually with communities that had set up guest houses as a way to generate income. Oh. So if you want to go hiking in northern Ethiopia, you can set, stay in these community-run guest houses with the idea that that... Um, generates an income that the families in that community distribute um, every X months between them. And then later on, I worked with other projects in uh, women-owned small-scale entrepreneur shops. So think of the ice cream shop in the corner cool. or the hair salon or um, so on and so forth. And with music, so women's wow. empowerment through music. Those were some of the projects I did while being there. 
it was a great experience. It also just really taught me that there needed to be a, a missing, there was a missing puzzle piece or a window through which mm. to look at this problem. Yeah. Wow. Okay. So now you're, you're, um, you're working with supply chains and you work directly with brands to help diminish modern slavery? Yes and no. So I came back to the US and did a master's program that I focused on social sustainability. So even though sustainability is very environmentally and socially interrelated, I focus more on the the people side of it and the working Mm. conditions there. And what I focused on was doing projects that really shown a light on best practices. So best practices for addressing modern slavery and electronic supply chains, or right now with Xinjiang, right? In China, there's a lot of talk about what to do with uh, the Uyghur minorities. Um, So how different supply chains are affected and trying to provide an accessible guidance of, look, these are some steps moving forward. Amazing. So what would you say are some simple accessible steps for brands um, that are just, you know, let's again say, quote unquote, that they are realizing that there's problems in their supply chain. They want to make um, steps forward into making their practices better. What are some simple things that they could yeah i think it really depends as you said on the on the industry itself and the size the scope of the brand but i think step number one and it sounds incredibly obvious is to know who your suppliers are and oftentimes Mm -hmm. brands don't know brands have no idea where the things they use come from and procurement teams often are set up with very different incentives that are not related to the working conditions of their supply chain that are much more related to meeting some costs um, requirements and some maybe some technical requirements of the sheen of the fabric or um, Mm -hmm. whatnot, but often they don't include this criteria. So it ends up being that you contract out with an agency that provides you with 500 towels and you have no idea whatsoever where the cotton came from where it was spun woven and turned into the finished good that got to your hands so i think step number one definitely is mapping your supply chain and that um so tier one suppliers are the ones you directly engage with. And then that goes as far down as tier four, which is raw materials and where the fiber um, came from. So I think understanding and mapping who your suppliers are is important. And it's not only important from a social sustainability uh, standpoint, it's also important from a compliance standpoint. You can't know what rules and regulations apply to you, what tariffs apply to you if you don't know where your product is coming from. Yeah, and I think what often happens is that people take a step back and say, whoa, whoa, that's not my responsibility because it's, you know, it's in somebody else's, hmm, you know, area or turf, even though it's really in their supply chain and in their end product. Totally, exactly. And I think that is the great transition that we're witnessing right now is not only growing consumer awareness in some sector in some sectors um but also just a regulatory push and i think regulation with my attorney hat on 
regulation does <laughs> set the base of what is acceptable and what isn't acceptable. And we're starting to see more countries setting a higher bar of, you know, companies, if you want to operate here, if you want to do business here, you have to understand the risks in your supply chain and you have to identify them and show us how you're going to mitigate them. Yeah. Yeah. That's a good point from the, the lawyer standpoint is because if it's legal, then people are going to keep doing it, right? There needs to be more laws or rules in place because then people may not necessarily get, oh, not get away with it, but they're going to push the boundaries, right? Yes and no. I think with modern slavery, it's very clearly illegal. We've, we've, right. we've, known, yes. we've known that it's illegal. What the newer push for regulation is doing is raising the bar for companies to identify their risks and establish due diligence procedures and policies that are very integrated into their standard operating and their risk management um, systems to address them. So yes, we know this is wrong. Yes, we know this is illegal. The new rules are more towards pushing companies to go a little bit further. And companies, let me be very clear, companies are not the only actor responsible here. I think sometimes also as consumers, we're like, we want this company to, yeah, but companies also operate in another country that has regulations and enforcement agencies and whatnot. So it's a very joint effort to tackle this problem, which mm -hmm. is part of what makes it long and hard and tricky. Yes, complicated and difficult to even take it apart because there are so many puzzle pieces. But you mentioned the word risk a few times. So when you're saying that, what do you mean specifically that either the companies or you know whoever else is involved, what does that mean exactly? I think that's a phenomenal question. I, I love that question. I think there's, <laughs> there's different elements to this. One is industry risk. And there's just certain industries that we know are more prone to exploitative working conditions or to be the host of these abuses. So I'll give an example of each. Hospitality. Hospitality mm. per se is an industry that is high risk because the abuse can happen on their own premises, right? So it's important to train your front desk staff, your room staff, everyone that engages with the customers to identify some of the red flags that could indicate that someone is there without their consent or someone is being deceived to being there um, to do things that they don't want to be doing. The other example is, for example, construction. Construction is um, not necessarily like a, in, in, in the sense of that we think about here of I'm remodeling my home. No, I'm thinking about construction of the next stadium for the World Cup, right? These mega projects yeah. that often require hundreds if not thousands of workers for large-scale projects of unscaled labor. So that's just an industry that we know also presents risks because of the industry itself. The second type of risks are country-related risks. They're countries that we know have more, um, let's say, vulnerabilities to forced labor, and even in some cases where it's state-sanctioned forced labor. So if you think of cotton in Uzbekistan, there is a state policy for 
cotton harvests. That involves what many people have called forced labor. There have been recent changes, and I'm not saying that the situation today is the same as 10 years ago, but there remains to be places where forced labor is, a, is an issue. Or thinking about it closer to home, I always love to include examples in the US just because we often think of this as far, far away problems. Uh, prison labor. And prison labor is involved in the supply chains of American retailers. And I, I love that you brought this up because I've been seeing some recent posts about companies that are involved with prison labor. Can you, can you um, define that for our audience? Because we haven't really dove, that, dove into um, that topic on the podcast. Sure. So um, I'll just take a step back for that uh, for a minute. With prison labor, what we care about is the compensation that people are getting and under which conditions they are working. So if you are a prisoner, A, you've already lost your plenty of your rights. Um, and I'm not going to focus the conversation on, on those other rights, but it's more of you <laughs> That's work. A, another conversation right, yes, for another yes. time. <laughs> you, work, you work eight hours a day at a shift in a factory that is either near the prison or in part of the prison yards making shoes or making prison uniforms. And you make a dollar an hour um, for the work you are doing, or you make 80 cents an hour for the work you are doing. So in the US minimum wage, I mean, there's to give, I don't know how much of the audience is international, but federal wage is around $7. And Many regions have pushed for a minimum wage of fifteen dollars. So to have a min of to be paid eighty cents for an hour of work does not correspond to regulation on what you should be paid. So that's one problem. The other problem is that how much people get to choose what they're doing and under what conditions of environmental health and safety. So ergonomics, etc how are we doing this? And it can be in the fields. I have personally not been to a field or an agriculture related um, project of prison workers. I have been in San Diego to the men's prison. They make shoes and prison uniforms for the California Department of Corrections. And I have seen it it's a factory floor and people are there working and making cents on the dollar that they can only spend within the prison, which already has inflated prices. So that is one, one way prison labor shows up in the States. Yeah. And I, I mean, I know very little about this specific topic. I, from what I know, it's from orange is the new black. Okay. <laughs> I don't know if you've seen that show, but, um, what I'm understanding just from people responding to these posts on social media is that um, all of the prisoners in the United States are getting paid less than you would for the same job if you weren't a prisoner. Is that the case? I, I don't want to say, I don't know if all or none. The cases that I know of, they're paid okay. way below anything. And from the part of the backlash against brands that are using prison labor is, well, if you were actually doing this with people outside of prison, you would be paying higher labor costs. Um, mm -hmm. So why? And it's also like, I guess, a way to 
express your um, concern with prison conditions at a broader level. And that's, I think, part of the problem that, that this issue of prison labor overlaps with many other critiques of the penitentiary and, and prison system in the U.S. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Do you think that part of part of it is um, that people don't seem to care just because they're prisoners and, and that it's, well, they did something wrong almost, they're in this situation, you know, why pay them? Or is it, again, they can get away with it and there are no, no rules yeah, I'm not that. sure. I mean, I'll speak for myself. I'll give kind of my own personal take on what can be happening through going through other people's minds. I think everyone kind of can have a different perspective and what they mentally tell themselves to justify X, Y, Z policy or behavior. I think one is it's very embedded. It's been done for years. Yeah. And I think that the inertia of that is powerful in some cases of maybe. Yes. For some um, leaders or policymakers, even just regular average civil society just thinks like, well, yeah, that's how it's been done. In another sense, maybe what normalizes it is what you just mentioned of, well, people did something wrong. It's not supposed to be fun, Um, which I think is a very pervasive, dangerous and harmful philosophy to push for um, for a variety of reasons that I don't don't think necessarily fit for here. But yeah, I think that's maybe one of the other notions that people use to justify this in their minds. But again, I think the importance is shining a light. This is happening. Here's three reasons why we think it's wrong. And here's what we can do to move the needle in a different direction. Absolutely. So have you worked with brands that have had prison labor that you know of, at least that not to, again, shout out who they are, but to just say what maybe you have done to maybe correct that? I think I've been on webinars recently um, that have been that have been quite interesting on brands that have been affected by a U.S. legal response. So Customs and Border Patrol, CBP has um, a mechanism called withhold release orders. And what that means is you can't import a product into the US if there's um, if the CVP finds that there are credible allegations of forced labor in the production of that product. And um, withhold release orders, which are called WROs in this space, have been put on foreign brands for several years. It's not a very widely used mechanism, but um, a Malaysian glove company, for example, had a WRO and had it um, was able to, let's say, overcome it and implemented policies and was able to show improvements in that space. And the their leader has been willing to share their journey on webinars that are publicly available now. So I think that's an interesting case if someone in the audience wants to hear of a story of a brand that has you know come out saying, hey, we have this, we found this. I think part of a challenge that we need to overcome as consumers and as the general public interested in this is it's okay to find it. Modern slavery is there. If we're not finding it, we're not looking hard enough. So bashing a brand that has the courage to say, hey, we found these working conditions. I would take a pause, comma, you know, (laughs) 
breathe in yeah. <laughs> and then say, okay, and what are you doing about it? Show me, show yes. me the next steps. And I think that is something I would really invite the audience to consider is that it's okay to find it. It's actually a sign that they're trying um, to yeah. identify this and to go into a bleak, thorny topic and then show what they're doing to address it and how they're remediating maybe the harms that they inadvertently caused. Because the easiest thing is just turning a blind eye and saying, oh, no, we don't have that. We're not. And if you're not finding it, again, you're not looking hard enough. So so really encouraging people to take pause and say, okay, you found it. What what next? Absolutely. Um, Before we jump jump topics a little bit, I'd love to hear um, what some of your favorite ethical brands are that you have found throughout your work. I think this is a topic clearly that comes up a lot, even in informal conversations with friends, you know, Hey, Camilla, you work on this. What do you like? What what, what pajamas should I buy? And my response to this, which some people may find um, unsatisfactory is, you know, we each have different criteria on what we care about and what really um, we find is a huge priority. And I think it's important to, find the brand that checks your own boxes and just try to do as much research as you can. I'll give a personal example of my own. I like to swap clothes. For me, swapping checks several boxes. A, I get social interactions with people that share maybe some of my interest. If we're both at a swap, at least we both came there. So there's a starting point for a conversation. And they provide a story for the clothes. So I have a black skirt that someone gave me and I swapped and someone said, oh yeah, my mom gave me that when I turned 30 and it was my favorite skirt for years. I'm so glad you have it. So the the story part of that itself for me has a lot of value. If you want specifically to look at brands, there's different certifications. So some people really care about it being organic. So you can check and see if a product is organic. You can check and see if a product is fair trade. Um, So I would just try and first, before going out and looking for brands, I would first prioritize, okay, what do I actually care about and what is most important for me? And then prioritizing that. And often we hear an argument we often hear is, oh, I can't afford sustainable clothes. And I think that is kind of a a two-sided coin, you know? Um, Mm -hmm. A, how much clothes are you thinking of buying? If you're thinking of buying (laughs) what what YouTubers haul of 45 shirts in a season, if you don't know what a YouTube haul is, I encourage you to go type that up and, and look it up. But basically, it's YouTubers that go and buy as much as they can of X brand and then showcase it to their followers online. Um, But yeah, if that's what you're thinking in terms of volume, then yes, absolutely not. This is an invitation more to reconsider how much we're buying, the story behind what we're buying and the true maybe artisanship and craftsmanship behind the clothes we're wearing or um, the linens. Yeah, it's all about. Yeah. Absolutely. All about slowing down fashion, quality over quantity. And I love that you brought up um, clothing swaps. It's absolutely my favorite way to shop. Um, we did, I used to own a fair trade boutique in San Diego and we had a couple of clothing swaps there. And 
I mean, it's just the best way to do it. I love it. And then thrift stores, you know, there are so many, so many thrift stores now that you can pay minimally to nothing for clothing that, you know, is getting an, a second life. So I love, I love that you brought up those tips when I asked, asked you about brands because that's the route I usually go to. So that was perfect. Um, and I love that you, you mentioned the values. You know, you kind of have to see what, what your values are first before um, finding some brands that might align with you. And we just did a style tip video for our one year anniversary and we kind of dove into some of that. Um, you know, if you um, don't want any plastic in your clothing, you know, what clothing might align with you, organic, vegan, you know, all of those different things and they're sustainable in different ways, but um, what most aligns with you. So thank you for, for shining some light on that. And um, I'd love to hear how you think that modern slavery has increased with the coronavirus. We know we're in the middle of a pandemic and you might, some people might think that it's slowed down. So if you could explain that to our audience, I think that would yeah. be really helpful. This is a question and a topic that I care very deeply about, and I'll, I'll try to articulate it in a way that is kind of transparent, but also just transmit some of my own um, let's say passion around this and just excitement <laughs> of talking um, about the the intersection of both of them. And I, I kind of see a Venn diagram in my mind of the two overlapping circles <laughs> because COVID is a health crisis, first and foremost, right? It's a pandemic. It is a virus that is attacking people. And the virus itself, we're all vulnerable to it, but our ability to respond to the virus and to get access to care is not the same. So we're all facing the same virus to a very kind of abstract level, but in the practical reality of it, we're not. We're not because the access to care is limited and the people that are dying from it, even the US, we've seen the racial disparities that are being brought up. So that from the health yep. side, and then the second side is COVID is an economic crisis, unemployment. And often I think U.S. media is sometimes very U.S. centric of unemployment claims have hit X million for the sixth week in a row. OK, yes, that is the local national level news. But at a global level, the unemployment just multiply that at a global level, and this is the scale of the crisis we're seeing right now. And lockdown measures, um, sometimes we think, you know, in, in San Diego, it's shelter in place. Oh, this is so extreme, and people protest and this and that. Well, there's people that really can't leave their homes for several weeks on end. And if you're a farmer, how are you supposed to sustain yourself and your family? Or if you... Um, live hand to mouth, which means that your income, basically your daily income is what you eat dinner with and with what you feed your children with that night. You really depend on your daily sources of income. So those two aspects of COVID and the pandemic go hand in hand. And having explained the, the base, I'll now go on to the impacts on it in modern slavery. So I think of modern slavery as a phenomenon that occurs due to an enabling environment of unmet needs, people that have economic and financial needs that they're not able to meet 
with formal employment and regulation that is difficult to enforce in very low capacity settings. So if we look at those two pieces of the equation, both of them are severely impacted by this crisis. There's more people unemployed, more people trying to have enough to eat every day, and regulation right now is really hard to enforce. How are we supposed to know what is actually going on? And governance are reorienting their finances, their, their staff, and so our NGOs to fund COVID relief efforts and to fund COVID response efforts. So it leaves an even wider gap in enforcement because all our attention is placed on the pandemic. And at a very kind of zooming in a little, I've tried to, I've tried to start from the big picture and zoom in slow, slowly to, to walk people through this. COVID has really increased the supply of vulnerable workers. People are in more dire economic conditions and also taking on debt to pay for their daily needs. And we already talked a little bit about how debt is a risk factor and a red flag for indebted labor because you end up paying back with months or years worth of salaries. But it has also shown um, very dire circumstances in terms of immigration policies, because once factories shut down in South Asia, for example, where workers need to return home, and if countries are under lockdown, how are they going to return home to be in the places where um, their families are, their households are? And even if they are able to return home, well, people are afraid of the virus, so where are they going to stay? Where, where do they arrive to? What's the safety net and what's the social um, capacity to respond to these people that are returning to their places of origin? And then on the demand side, well, brands and retailers are trying to cut costs even more because they're also losing profits. Their stores have been closed. They need to show some form of result to shareholders in their reports. And I think sourcing practices are also a driver sometimes of modern slavery. If you just want to cut costs and have lead times that are very, very short, sometimes that leads to increased overtime, overtime that isn't optional, overtime that maybe is paid with huge delays. So those are some of the ways that um, COVID has really increased the risk of modern slavery. So to wrap it up, it's a health crisis and an economic crisis that has just really heightened risk factors for working populations across the planet. And what we're seeing in the US is just a tiny example of what is happening in other countries. Here we have bailout packages wow. and here we have stipends and checks and this and that. That is not the case for many, many workers. Yeah, and honestly, the connection is there. It's so obvious. It's just, again, taking a step back, we're not really thinking about those things. Um, like you said, it's it makes total sense when a health crisis and an economic crisis is going on globally. Um, it's 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 a scary world right now, and it's very sad. So, kind of to switch from that, because we don't want our Correct. listeners to get too uh, too. Um, down in the dumps, with all of this work, how are you staying positive and how are you um, 
you know, taking self-care and, and things like that. Great. So I think I'll start from that, um, from a personal level, let's say the very basics from a personal level. I think sleep is one where I very easily cut off on and I've tried really hard to force myself, you know, if I'm going to set my alarm, I wake up pretty early, but if I'm going to set my alarm early, that means I need to go to bed on time. No doobling around and no puttering around. Um, I really limit my news consumption. Um, I check the news once a day to make sure I'm not going to do, you know, if something changed in San Diego, make sure I'm not breaking a rule here without knowing going on a trail that is actually closed. Um, but I don't track cases. I don't track um, deaths, hospital entrances. I, I really, for me at least, that was not helpful at all. And um, ensuring that I have a friend put it really well, that I put myself in the path of joy. You know, what brings me joy? I love to learn. Let's learn to play the guitar um, and just other projects like that that maybe in the past I hadn't done. And then from a mm -hmm. professional point of view of what keeps me positive is staying engaged with the organizations that have been working on this for years and with the brands that are really trying. So yeah. sustainability reports are coming out. I will go through them and take a deeper dive and look at their human rights section and their responsible sourcing section and learn about what they're doing. Ask people to have a conversation of, hey, I know you're on the team. Would you be willing to chat a little bit longer? And people are. And right now there is a willingness to share and who's not excited to talk about what they care about. So webinars right now, I try to prioritize them because there's a lot, but I do try to prioritize them. Reach out to people in this community and stay mentally engaged with topics that I care about. So those would be kind of my two cents on personal and professional self-care right now. Yeah, that's perfect. And I think that that's such a good point. Um, you know, these topics can, can be daunting. You know, there's a lot of bad things happening in the world right now. Um, but Jen and I always like to, to shine light on the beautiful artisan stories that we get to hear and the brands that are doing good work. And like you said, even brands that, hey, we found this and we're making a change, that is, that's progress. And there is progress every day. So, so trying to focus on, on that, that light is a big, a big difference. Um, we talked a little bit about um, you working directly with brands and, you know, a couple things like that, um, when I asked about your eth your favorite ethical brands and, and things like that, do you have any final tip um, for our consumers? I know you mentioned the thrift uh, thrifting and uh, clothing swaps and finding their values, but any anything last before we wrap up? Sure, I think there's there's two elements that come to mind, and one for me is really thinking about our own agency and our own rules. I think sometimes with these topics, they're bleak, they're thorny. They sound overwhelming, but really there's personal choices that do make a difference. And um, I was talking to someone earlier today and she said, yeah, we often think about blood diamonds, right? And oh, where does my engagement ring come from? Okay, those same questions, let's start to expand them to other areas. You know, what what phone do I use? What are the policies of the phone company? You know, we're having both of us, we're having this conversation through a variety of, you know, we both have our phones, our computers yeah. open, our earphones on <laughs> to just... Think a little bit about that and ask the brands those questions. You know, they do care about consumer pressure and checking the policies on the website. And then from a more um, 
A second step that I think is important is to really try and spread the value of our beliefs. You know, everyone has that friend that loves those YouTube hauls and that loves maybe taking the time to have what it could be a difficult conversation, but might not be to raise awareness amongst our peers about the choices that they are making. Absolutely. Absolutely. And there's a, there's a, you know, gentle, loving way to go about doing that. It's not, you know, attacking somebody. It's just having an open conversation. Thank you so much for this conversation. I, I really do think that our listeners are going to be learning so much. And I had, I had lots of questions for you and you spoke so well and answered everything that I had asked you. So thank you for that. Um, is there a way that our listeners can find you and, and learn more? Sure. So I started a Medium channel. Um, so it's medium.com slash modernslavery101. And as its name implies, it's really to guide people that are interested in this. And if you start from the very beginning, you know, what is modern slavery? All the way to very recently talking about COVID and artisanal gold mining and COVID in commercial fishing. So there's kind of very short pills and very short... Um, articles on that and i'm also on linkedin and twitter um you can find me i mean i'm I'm sure my name will be on the podcast there but i'm pretty easy to find online i would think awesome Here at the Philosophy Podcast, we recognize that we do not live in a bubble. We are all connected. There are people behind every product we shop for, and we can influence their lives when we vote with our dollar.